Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Lisa C. has been a longtime friend of our show. She came on back in 1998 with Barbara and has been on several times since. She's the New York Times bestselling author of The Island of Sea Women, The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, Snowflower and the Secret Fan, Peony and Love, Shanghai Girls, China Dolls, and Dreams of Joy, which debuted at number one. She is also the author of On Gold Mountain, which tells the story of her Chinese-American family's settlement in Los Angeles. Lisa joins me today to talk about her latest novel, Lady Tan's Circle of Women, out and available this week and published by Scribner. We'll chat about how Lisa modified her writing and research process in the face of the pandemic, how she used the stages of a woman's life as the structure for the novel, how she approaches difficult writing scenes, what she must know before she begins writing and what she allows herself to discover along the way, bringing 500-year-old history to life, so much more. There is so much to talk about. Before I bring her on, a reminder to visit our Patreon page. We're offering some special tips and perks to our patrons. Hopefully the show has boosted your writing in some way and given you some useful advice. Hopefully you enjoy these behind-the-scenes tours of how books get made. If so, look for us there. You can see all the benefits by visiting patreon.com slash writers on writing. Any level of support helps. We also invite you to leave a review of our show on Amazon or wherever, however you consume your podcasts. That brings new listeners to the show and that helps us out immensely too. Okay, enough of the housekeeping. On with the show. Lisa, welcome back. Thank you for having me. It's really fun to talk to you again. Oh, so fun. I realized you were on with Barbara in 2018, but it's been, looking at my notes, nine years since we last talked. So we are... <laughs> well, you know, nine years. I, I know. hope we don't let another nine years go by. And I feel like every one of those years, some of those years were like dog years. So they were like eight, you know, <laughs> every year felt like 10 years. <laughs> exactly. So I have enjoyed learning how this book, because of the pandemic, came about in a really much different way and through a much different process than most of your books. So I thought maybe we could just start there with how the book was very much pandemic born and just talk about how it came to you. Yeah, so ordinarily, I think about books for a very long time before I decide this is the one, you know, and I'll, I'll quietly do research for two years, five years, 10 years, in one case, 20 years. Um, and, but I, you know, sometimes it's just like, I don't have my way in. So it's just back there in the back of my mind percolating away. I thought I knew what the next book was going to be. I had been, again, quietly doing research for a couple of years. There was just one little problem, which was that it was going to require a trip deep, deep, deep into a very remote part of China. And when the pandemic hit, you know, there was no way I could do that in 2020, not in 2020. One, not, not even until uh, just a few months ago could I have gone to China, you know, because the restrictions and the quarantine was just so harsh. So I spent a good part of 2020 just at loose ends, you know, at home like everyone else. Uh, I, I've been thinking about this lately, you know, that 
I keep saying like anyone else, everyone else, but really essential workers were out there in the world. It turns out writers aren't terribly essential for the world <laughs> to, to keep going. Anyway, I was at home and feeling very much at loose ends. And, and I don't mean to sound melodramatic, but you know, there was an element of, well, my life is over because I couldn't go to China to do research. I couldn't go to any of the usual libraries and institutions where I do research. They were all closed and they all remained closed during the entire uh, research process and writing of the book. So um, I didn't know that yet. But anyway, I was <laughs> right. at loose ends. And it wasn't until October. So remember, we had lockdown beginning in March, that I was just walking through my office, I have a big wall that's just all my research books. And one of the books, the spine popped out at me, and I don't know why it was pale gray with a darker gray lettering. But I pulled it down, reproducing women, pregnancy and childbirth in the Ming Dynasty. And I looked and I had had that book on my shelf for 10 years and had never opened it. Hmm. Anyway, I sat down right that minute thinking, you know, my life is over. I'm just sitting at home and uh, opened it and started reading. And I got to page 19 and there was a mention of Tan Yanshan, a woman doctor in the Ming dynasty who, when she turned 50 in 1511, published a book of her medical cases. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And I set the book down, came to, you know, look her up on the internet and discovered that that book was not only still available in Chinese, it was also available in English. And I ordered it. It came the next day. And so instead of having years and years of thinking about a book, this one, it was about 26 hours. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. And not to mention some of the elements of the pandemic seeped a little bit into this subject matter of the story too. And, and we can get into that when we introduce the book. But yeah, I just, I, I think it's so interesting because one, because as we're living through the pandemic, you know, I remember being so curious about what would come out of it and how artists and writers would make sense of it. And on a subconscious level, I can't think it coincidence that you would write a book about medicine during a pandemic, but also for writers to just be aware of the ways we're, we're sort of writers are like, you know, birds bringing worldly material back into our nests. And, you know, we're turning twigs and string into something that makes sense and makes order out of all this chaos. And so, you know, to some extent, you're treading on the, the same ground you've always loved to explore, which is Chinese history and the relationships between women with the twists of what was happening around you and to you as it was happening around and to, to all of us. So I just thought it was really interesting to see the ways each writer is refracting that common global experience into their own unique ways of making art. Yeah, I think it's going to be a great subject, probably for a lot of people who are going to be writing their dissertations in the future. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what came out of the pandemic, whether it's, you know, in novels or dance, theater, you know, I, I, um, fine art, I just think that it was such a unique time period, and that we again, artists are not essential workers. <laughs> so we were really <laughs> confined in a way that many of us aren't ordinarily. 
And so you had to kind of turn inward, but also that creativity doesn't go away. You know, the desire to create doesn't go away. One of the things that struck me or has struck me, but only recently about Lady Tan's Circle of Women is that it was written during a period of isolation. You know, when I worked on Snowflower and the Secret Fan, I had a very bad concussion and I wasn't allowed to drive for six months. Hmm. Although I live in Los Angeles, I'm way up on a hill. I can walk about a mile and a half. Maybe it's more like two miles before I get to a gas station. Hmm. But it's, you know, it's not like you want to walk to the gas station because they don't even serve coffee or anything. (laughs) So I was really pretty isolated. And if you know that novel, you know, it's these women who live very much in isolation, who create, who are communicating through a secret writing system. Well, with Tanya and Shun, she was a wealthy woman, a highly educated woman from an elite family. She was a doctor, but, you know, Confucius had some pretty strong feelings about women. (laughs) None of them good, I think we can say. (laughs) But one is that, you know, a, a good woman will never take more than three steps from her front door, from her front gate. And so Tanya and Shen was never expected to go out into the world. And and so she, you know, lived in her husband's big compound home, you know, where you're, you're living with whatever 40, 60 relatives, plus all of the servants and people who take care of you. So you're living with about 100 people within the walls of the compound. But nevertheless, that there is something very isolated and isolating about that. And I think the fact that I was kind of living a version of that, and, and in fact, we all were, right, living a version of that kind of isolation where you're not interacting very much with the outside world, I think really helped me in the same way that the concussion had helped me with Snowflower and the Secret Fan, that this imposed isolation really helped me be in the mindset of what it must have been like 500 years ago to live in that kind of, of um, imposed isolation. That's funny. I had the exact same thought when I read that Confucius quote that I think was either in the novel or in your author's note. I think it was in the novel. Yeah, I had the same thought that, yeah, nobody is stepping more than three steps outside their front door. And it it did have that feeling. And then as all of the abortion issues started taking off I mean, in that our was country, just so weird. Yes. <laughs> it was just... I mean, I already knew what I was writing, but the fact that that was happening at the same time was, you know, it started happening. Well, Dobbs' decision, I can't remember now how long ago it was, but I was pretty far into writing the book. And so it really, it really hit home for me. And it really um, kind of reinforced what I was writing. And certainly in the novel, there's, and at that time in China, and and really, and we can just say all the way to today, uh, (laughs) that this idea of men having control over women's bodies. And I think that this is something, I mean, I wasn't there in caveman days, but I'm pretty sure men were already 
wanting to exercise some control over women's bodies. And of course, we see that happening today, whether it's in our country or in other parts of the world. And I suspect rather glumly that when we're all living on Mars, we're going to be having the same conversations about who has control over women's bodies and who has a say over what happens to them. Yes. Yeah, it was so interesting and fun. Maybe fun isn't the right word to just watch all of these reverberations through history repeating on themselves, all the themes repeating on themselves in this book. Well, I suppose before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I should let you introduce it so that people know what we're we're talking about here in broad strokes, because we haven't really done that. So maybe take us into the Lady Tan's world a little bit so that we at least have the foundation so I can ask questions that might make more sense to our listeners here. Right. So, you know, as I said, she is, this book is based on the life of a real woman, Tan Yanshan, who was a doctor in the Ming Dynasty. And all of her patients were women and girls. Scholars believe that most of them are, you know, the the women and girls who lived in the compound. So her husband's, mostly her husband's relatives. There are also some servants who live in that compound. So some of her cases involve, oh, you know, a a kitchen maid or different people who work in the compound. But she also had a couple of other cases where one of the women is a brick and tile maker. There's another one who uh, is a woman who holds the tiller on a ship. So, you know, how did she meet those people if she never got out? So that was one of the questions I was asking myself. But what I wanted to do was sort of go off of what is known about her. So in her book, she has her own introduction where she talks about her life and talks about her lineage, you know, that her father was an imperial scholar, her grandfather, her great-grandfather, her uncle. I mean, she a long line of very high-level imperial scholars. And then she talks about how she was her grandparents and that her grandfather, she used to recite poetry to him while he drank wine in the evening. And one night he was reputed to say, you know, this girl, she's very good at reciting poetry But, you know, she's so smart, she should learn my medicine. So he was, he was a imperial scholar, but he was also what was known as a literati doctor. So someone who learns about medicine from books. So she should learn my medicine. Well, his wife, Tanya Shun's grandmother, was a hereditary doctor. And so she had learned from her parents, who'd learned from their parents, who'd learned from their parents. And of course, she's the one who really became the mentor uh, to Tanya Shun. So anyway, the novel really follows her life based off of what she wrote about it, but also what her male relatives and some other people had written these prefaces and prefaces, I guess, and um, a couple of afterwards. So in one of the afterwards, it's one of her, I guess it's like her great nephew who is able to sort of bring you up to date, you know, now that she's no longer on the planet and and has died. And so she, he brings that story forward, goes far, you know, far beyond where her actual book ends. 
And as I mentioned in the intro, it's told in a it's a it's a pretty chronological structure, but it's broken down into the phases of a woman's life, which are essentially, you know, kind of the the milk years when you're very little and then your adolescent years when you're getting ready for marriage, having your period, those teenage kind of years, and then your childbearing years are the kind of the the really most important, the heavy hitting parts of a woman's life. <laughs> right. And it made me very sad to see the sitting quietly years are really only like 20 pages. Or <laughs> <laughs> nowadays we spend most of our lives. Right. Um, but tell me a little bit about structuring the book around. I mean, I just love this idea that the, the kind of one of the central themes of the book of a woman's life also becomes the, the structure of the novel for you and and it's broken down into those four parts was that always kind of there that it was going to be kind of the the chronological stages of a woman's life uh it actually took me a while to come to that i i actually used that same structure for snowflower and the secret fan Mm -hmm. and even you know these books are separated by 20 years of of my years (laughs) and hundreds of years and in the story but I really felt that what was known about her really fell into those four categories. But more than that, just as you said, these are very much the time periods in a woman's life that we, you know, I think like that up until you're about whatever, you know, you're, you're a little child then you're in that, they called it um, hairpinning days where you're sort of getting ready for marriage, you know, and, and whatever form that takes. And even today, even if you choose never to get married, there is that time period when you're a teenager, you're going out in the world, you're experiencing life in a different way, you're, you're starting to become your own person. And then what's known as rice and salt days, those sort of the the meaty, the meaty years of a woman's life can be one of the things that's fascinating about Tanyan Shen is that she's, you know, she is a wife. She is a mother. She follows all the rules of motherhood. She tries to follow all the rules for being a good daughter-in-law, for a very difficult mother-in-law. And yet she also has this, what we would call a career And so she struggles with what, again, what we would call a sort of work-life balance and how she, you know, that first chapter of part three of, you know, that rice and salt days, it's just following her through a day. And there, she has so many responsibilities and yet she still manages to carve out a little bit of time for herself and her friendship with Maylene. But other than that, it's, you know, I've got to get everybody ready for the day. I've got to bind my daughter's feet. I've got to go study with my grandparents, sneak off and visit my friend, then come back to the home and, and, you know, finish her chores as a wife and mother. So again, not everybody gets married, not everyone has children, but I think most women can relate to this time period in your life when you have so many responsibilities. And when it is so hard to find time to take care of yourself, treat yourself, and then this period of sitting quietly, which, you know, traditionally was 
after your husband dies, you're just supposed to sit quietly until you can join him. (laughs) (laughs) But these are far from sitting quietly days for Tan Yanshan. I mean, even though that is just one chapter at the end, in fact, what is known about her is is that those years became the most productive for her as a doctor. Yes. And that she had become so good at diagnosis that she was like one of the great doctors of myth that she could look at someone and see through them. This is what was written about her. Yeah, it is heartening to see that all of her important work was, you know, after she got those pesky children out, mm-hmm. <laughs> she could she could she could focus on her patients. Yeah, and the other wonderful there's, as you mentioned, her best friend, Mei Ling. I mean, that was really one of the most beautiful relationships in the book and so complicated as women's friendships always are and complicated again by issues of class, which is another thing that really reverberated in the last, not that America has never not suffered from class issues, but they've certainly ramped up, I would say, in the last years. And uh, so to watch that reverberation of of the strain and stress that class issues place on everyone's relationship and to Mm -hmm. watch how all of that played out was really very fun. And I was wondering if, I mean, I meant to kind of make a cast list of all of the the very many characters in the book, but tell me a little bit about unpacking. You had things to go on with Lady Tan, and I was wondering how much you had to go on of any of the other characters and how much and how, in what ways, you set about exploring their motivations, what made them tick, how much you knew about them, how much writing you did about them that maybe never made it onto the page to understand the relationships. Because her her good friend, Mei Ling, you know, she had her own mother who plays quite a large role in the book. Tell me a little bit about how bringing those other characters to life, kind of how that process goes for you. Mm-hmm. Well, you've hit on so many different things. I know, now. I know. As I was talking, I was like, this is very unfair. This is very <laughs> So I'm just going to start with one thing, and then you can remind me of some of the other yes. stuff that you touched on. And one of them has to do with class. And I did, I mean, yes, this is a novel about women, but and it's a you know a, a woman doctor who's treating the people in her household for the most part but i i was really thinking about these you know different experiences that women have so you do have those servants poppy who is given to her practically at birth and will stay with her until she dies. Um, and there are other servants throughout. Then they're, they're the, the concubines, you know, these women who are bought and sold to entertain men, you know, to entertain their owners. And Miss Chen is actually, I, she may be my favorite character. <laughs> yes. um, I just love her. I think she's so wise and yet what a horrible life she has and, and in many ways. Anyway, so then you have the concubines, you have the wives, so these, you know, women who are, again, elite, they have privilege, and yet they're very confined. You have the actual working women, so people like the brick and tile maker, or the tiller woman, or Mei Ling and her mother, who are both uh, midwives. 
So they're out and about in the world in a way that these elite women never could be. And then finally, you know, going all the way up to the empress and the kind of ladies in waiting. And even though their life experiences and how they live day to day, it's completely different, right? You know, if you're poppy compared to the empress, for example, (laughs) we as women are connected through our biology and our physiology that it doesn't really matter where you are on that societal scale. We still eventually get a period. You may or may not get pregnant. You may or may not have trouble getting pregnant. You may or may not have trouble getting that baby out. (laughs) You You know, you'll eventually go through menopause. And so this is something that, you know, really unites us across time across society, culture, economics, we're we're all connected by these experiences that we have because of our physical bodies. So I was really starting from that place of, of thinking first about class, but also about our bodies and how and how those are connect, you know, how they connect or don't connect. And then you had another question, oh, like a bit about Mei Ling, right? And her mother and how that relationship is so different for this friendship. So in Chinese medicine, doctors were not ever supposed to come in contact with blood. They thought about blood, if you think of it like with a capital B, as more of an essence that is guiding the body, but but you would never touch it. And of course, midwives, they're just they get a lot of blood. They're steeped in, in contact blood, yes. With a lot of blood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so this relationship, which is that these two girls are brought together, I, I, you know, by Tanya Shen's grandmother at a young age. And it, even though this is a very unlikely pairing and really a, a not very logical pairing, it's done to help actually both girls what would benefit, right? But right there, you you have the, these really big class distinctions, but not just class, it's, it's also about blood. And again, sort of going back to how Confucius labeled people and put them in these categories so that anybody who did come in contact with blood, butchers, midwives, they were just at the very bottom of the ladder of life. And yet, they are so needed, right? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, you need people who can perform these tasks, and for women especially, they needed with midwives who would help them through labor. I hadn't realized until I think it was another interview you did that that even the, the whole field of obstetrics is very new. I didn't realize it's not really only a hundred years old. So the dependency on midwives across cultures and across time has been, I think, pretty ubiquitous. And it's only about a hundred years ago that women in this country started going to the hospital to have their babies. Yeah, most women had them at home. Most women had them with with um, midwives. Yes, 
So sketching out all of these characters and, and, and you're really pulling out how many there are between the concubines and the servants and the empress and the women around Lady Tan, her mother-in-law, all of these, I mean, some of them are more minor than others. You know, there's probably tiers of how major and minor some of these characters mm-hmm. are. But how much work do you do? Let's take a character like Mei Ling, who's who's a pretty major actor, but not quite at center stage. Or Lady Chen would be another example of that kind of second tier, major minor character. Mm-hmm. How much character sketch do you do about them? Do you have sort of sketches, photographs, things no, that you I use? No, I don't that. I mean, obviously you don't have <laughs> photographs, but I mean, things that you're basing them on or uh, tell me a little bit about how much you know about them. Jeez, I feel like such a lazy bones. Wow. No, no. Um, I don't think I do. I don't think I do that. Okay. That's good to know. I, no, that's- I mean, obviously, a con- I, I think there's a lot in this particular novel about clothing and hair and yes. makeup. And so, yes, I, I actually did a lot of research on that. What a working woman would wear, uh, certainly what the empress would wear what concubines yeah so I guess and maybe that was it maybe all of how I built the characters really started literally like from their shoes up yeah or from their you know what they wear you know do they have ornaments in their hair or a scarf so you could either say you know feet up or from the hair down and that helped so much to define who they were, what they looked like, were they working, were they there to be decorative, like Miss Chen. Oh, right. and you know, there was one category of women that I forgot, which was the sort of old spinster aunts. Mm, and yes. that they, you know, they also had their own level, they, you know, this a spot that was important, yet useless at the same time, you know, that they'd never gotten married, that they never had children, they never had sons, so they hadn't contributed to society in that way. And yet they they did serve a purpose in the household. They did, you know, um, embroideries, they wove cloth, they told stories, they tried to be very entertaining, you know, to kind of earn their keep. We'll be back with more from Lisa C. and Lady Tan's Circle of Women in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show, if you've learned any tips that may have inched you closer to publication, if you enjoy these behind-the-scenes discussions of how books get made, this is your chance to support the show. Any amount helps us out. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing to see all of the benefits of becoming a patron. Let's get back to it with Lisa C. talking about Lady Tan's Circle of Women. I loved all of the discussions of mothering, being a mother, being a mother-in-law. I don't think it gives too much away to say that Lady Tan lost her mother right towards the the beginning. In the the first chapter. Yeah, her mother dies. And I was thinking about that in respect to your mom, the, the late great. Carolyn C., who was also such a, a wonderful friend of, 
and supporter of this show. You know, she's been gone now since 2016. And as I was reading this book, it just made me wonder because it's so steeped in mother-daughter relationships, if since she's been gone, if that has given you even more sort of depth and complexity to how you think about the mother-daughter relationship and how you render it in your work? Well, you know, in the last three novels, the mother dies, I think, in the first chapter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I I would say I, I'm still very much that loss is still very much in me. And I don't know, I, I think we, we do think about these, I mean, this is an essential relationship we have in our life, right? I mean, every single person on earth somewhere along the line had a mother. And maybe you knew her, maybe you didn't, maybe she loved you, maybe she didn't, maybe she was, you know, funny, maybe she was just dull as dishwater. But no matter what, somewhere along the line, you had one. And so this is a universal. At the same time, it's also, it can be very fraught. You know, it can be very complicated. It can be difficult. And it can also be wonderful. But but there's so much there. And I I think especially for mothers and daughters, um, I, I have sons, so I, you know, I ha- don't have a daughter that I could say what kind of a mother I would have been to a, a daughter. But I can see that the relationship that my husband has with our sons, it's also very unique. But I don't, for whatever reason, I mean, I think there are reasons, but why that relationship can be kind of, um, what's the word I'm thinking, like cleaner. I mean, yes, of course, men can have, fathers and sons can have a lot of divisions about ambition and what your job is going to be and those those kind of man-to-man things. But with women, I think sometimes it's, I just, I don't know, maybe you have ideas about that, but why it can be so fraught. and. I don't mean to just sound like I'm a broken record, but I I do think a lot of it has to do with sexuality, with reproduction, how people want to protect their daughters from being exposed to too much or, you know, being victimized or getting pregnant when they're, you know, 14, um, (laughs) all of those kinds of things. Well, the foot binding is such a great metaphor for the fraughtness, I think, of the mother-daughter relationship because you're inherently inflicting enormous amounts of pain on your daughter with the intent of securing a better, happier, whatever that means, future for her, tied up in sexuality, tied up in vanity, tied up in beauty. Mm -hmm. I just loved all of those scenes and uh, and it did stand as such a great symbol for the the fraughtness of that relationship that you have to impart so much and it takes so much to do it i mean i can imagine giving birth to a girl would be a great sadness in the chinese culture because you're because it's not a boy and because you're you're going to be put in a position of having to do this to her and mm-hmm. that was that was wonderful which i guess brings me to this discussion of I guess I'll call them cringy scenes. And and I don't want to give, obviously, anything away about the book. But there were a number of 
cringy scenes, most of them having to do with the body and bodily something. I wish and, you and could see it, how I'm smiling over here. <laughs> well, foot binding is an easy way into it because it's, it's, I don't think it's giving anything away, but but let's just say across a number of, of issues, there were some cringy scenes. And I was wondering if, you know, for writers out there, if there are things you can say about approaching cringy scenes, because we talk about a lot on the show about how to approach a sex scene, how to approach a violence scene. And with you, I thought it's it's very appropriate to, to talk about how to approach a cringy scene. And, you know, you, you want to get people into the physical, emotional, psychological experience of your character. But, you know, how far is too far? And, and whatever you can say about that would be wonderful. Well, is that so vague? First, I'll just say that a, a lot of that comes from the research. So again, you know, I was kind of limited. I was kind of limited by what is actually known about Tan Yan Shen. And I, I thought this idea of bringing in a friend who was a midwife, it, would, it allowed me to explore other things that also related to women and medicine. But Tan Yan Shen as a doctor might have been present at a birth, but she would not have been involved in it. And so by having Mei Ling there, of course, I can. And Tan Yanshan gives birth herself a few times, five, four times, I think. Yep. So I did research about what it was like to give birth in those times. And there's actually been quite a bit written, you know, and some of these are from diaries. Some of them are from other medical texts from the Ming Dynasty. And there are certain stories that when I would read them, I would think, oh, I have got to use that. <laughs> <laughs> that is just so, my God. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's my reaction. I, and I just think, oh, I just can't wait till I get to use that because it did happen in real life. I don't think this gives anything too much a way to say that there is a scene where there's a baby being born where the foot comes out first. Mm -hmm. And the, and this is a true story. So the midwife, this particular midwife who was educated, so could write a few letters, wrote on the baby's foot, go home, and then prick the baby's foot with a pin so that the baby's foot would you know, go home, or go get back <laughs> up in there. And I just thought, oh, man, I, you know, I just, I read something like that. And I just think I've got to use that. Yes. And I just love it. And then I'll just three, I'll just give you three examples. But this one, I just can't go into details. I will just say the worm. Yes. That yes. also is from a true story. And oh God. I just, I read <laughs> oh that. And of course, I got to sort of lay in the hints about that for about 150 pages. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people will pick it up ever that, you know, what what's coming or what then later then we'll put the, the readers will be like, Oh, yeah, I was there all along. Oh, my God. No one I don't think anyone's going to pick that up. I mean, I I, I, in so, retrospect, because, yeah, because, yeah. because it was just like, Oh, my God, oh my God, but I yeah. but writing that I just had so much fun. I mean, it, it's a very, and ends up being a pretty short scene, but I just, and of course it's quite towards the end. So I'd been waiting a really long time to get to write it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then I think the other parts 
have to, I could be wrong, I might be just reading into what you might think of as squeamish and cringy and what I do, but the, the stuff with the autopsies. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so the book is mostly based on miscellaneous records of a, of a female doctor by Tan Yunshan. But there was another book that was written in, a I don't know, a thousand something maybe it's in the 1200s. Yeah, I think it's the 1200s that is considered or is the earliest book of forensic medicine in the world. And it just had, mm. oh, just, you know, I mean, every single page is just cringy. <laughs> so I had to like limit myself to what I could use. Um, but that book, not only is that the first known for book of forensic medicine coroners would be down there in that low level of society like doctors and butchers but midwives as as you know also would serve as a coroner's assistant because they were already considered polluted so that book not only was it you know is it the oldest in the world or first in the world, but it was used all the way up until the last century, so only 20 years ago, 23 years ago, uh, in China, a lot of the methods that were in that. So it's kind of like a, you know, CSI book of, (laughs) of Chinese autopsies. Wow. So that brings me to the question. So, you know, let's say, we'll just say the worm. So, you know, certain things that are going to happen. I I guess this goes to outlining. Mm -hmm. Um, So as you're spending three, five, 20 years thinking about the book on a tip, not, not this one, but other books, and even this one, how much do you know before you start putting, you know, fingertips to keyboard and what does that kind of look like in your office is it just notebooks of obviously it's research but is it is it pretty granular outlining where you know worm scene towards end yeah that's pretty much it okay worm scene towards end okay um i start with about a seven page outline you know more like a book proposal I'm very lucky now my publisher says I don't need to do a proposal, but I, I think it's really important for us to all be on the same page because yeah. I'd hate to work for two years on something. And then they said, yeah, we said that, but maybe this isn't what we wanted after all. So I, yeah. I just think it's good that everybody knows what, you know, what I'm doing and they're all on board. So anyway, I have like a seven page proposal that's more here's the time period, here's this woman, this is what she's, who she's based on, what I think some of the research is going to look like. Uh, And certainly that was important for this book, given that I couldn't do the usual types of research. Um, I I felt it was important for all of us to know that I I had an idea of what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. Mm -hmm. And then as I start to do the research, I start adding to that original seven pages. And I'd say it's probably when it gets to be about 35 pages, but very front loaded to the story is when I'll start writing. And so, you know, these are historical novels. So there are certain things I have to pay attention to. You know, I can't move certain, a certain emperor is only going to be emperor in the time period that he was the emperor takes so long and this was very hard to find but you know how long does it take to get from Wuxi 
the town where she lived to Beijing on the Grand Canal in 1496. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's things that are just very, you know, if you have in China at that time, smallpox would kind of ripple through the country every three years. Mm-hmm. So I had to kind of work that into the calendar. So I look at these things kind of like those kinds of things, like signposts along the way. Yeah, These are things I can't move. I'm stuck with. These are, you know, permanent markers. And then I lay in things like, well, I knew that Tanyan Shen's mother was going to die. Was it going to be at the end of the first chapter? I didn't know that right away. But you know, once that happens, that sets certain a, a ripple effect, right? So now the, this little girl is going to have to go live with her grandparents. She has to get there. How is she going to get there? So the, you know, she's eventually going to meet this other little girl who is completely unlike her, who she shouldn't even be in contact with at all. But how is that going to work out? At some point, you're going to have an arranged marriage. At some point, these women got pregnant and had babies and usually a pregnancy lasts nine months. So those things, they're a little bit more movable, but they also become like signposts along the way. So when I sit down to write each morning, you know, I I know where I'm going. I see that signpost out there, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. That happens in the actual writing. Okay. And were there surprises to you in this where you were veering a little bit, you know, something came up that you were like, boy, I didn't see that coming. Didn't see that worm coming. <laughs> Not the worm. <laughs> Often there, you know, there, there'll be something that's like a huge surprise that I didn't know about. But this, I don't think I had that with this one. Yeah, it this one came really fast. Pretty, I mean, I think it was pretty, I don't know if this is true, but in my mind, it's quite tightly plotted. Yeah. And, and if you think of these sort of through lines, there's the friendship and what happens with that friendship. There's career. There's that bit of a mystery. Yeah. Um, you know, that there are these things that the plot is pretty layered. And so... I, I I had to be I had to stick pretty close to what I'd outlined because once you pull something out or somebody you know somebody goes off and does something that's completely unexpected that can really mess you up when you have when it's so plotted. Yeah, that's what I was thinking with the mystery component is that had to be really well known mm-hmm. so that it could be very well set up. And the other thing that this does so well that I marvel at is not only do you have to convey history, which is, you know, five, six hundred years old, but there there's, seems to me, and I know very little about Eastern philosophy and Eastern thought, but the concepts of justice or the, con- you know, I loved reading your author's note and I really encourage people after they're done with the book to spend time with your author's note at the end so you can absorb exactly how much research you did. But just the the Chinese way, ancient Chinese way of thinking about things, thinking about blood, thinking about justice, these are just tiny little examples, is very different. And so you have to convey that very different slant on the world 
not a, you know, a waspy Christian focused slant. It's a completely different way of viewing the world and have that make sense to the Western reader without being didactic and preachy and professorial. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you always do that in, in your work, but I, marvel at it every time you do it because I know how difficult that must be. And I, I don't know if there's anything you can say about well, you know, how I, to approach that. I, you know, so, so can I, you know, had this real woman and her real family and part of her family, they were healers, they were doctors, but the other side of it is that her father and grandfather, great grandfather, they all worked for the, the minute, the board of justice or board of punishments so they're they're inflicting justice right <laughs> and but it, it they saw it in terms of punishment and how completely opposite that is from healing so yes. i was just fascinated yes. that she had that in her own family and how you know her grandfather i know i mean that this is known that he became a doctor later in life because he felt bad about all the punishment that he had inflicted on people and punishment was so stratified. I think you could say that today, you know, it's like very, you know, you're the three strikes and law and how many years you get for manslaughter, first degree murder and things like that. But I do think within our system, there's still some flexibility and some, you know, a judge can be more lenient, but at that time, the rules were just this, this, if you did, you know, such and such, this is the penalty period. Hmm. And those penalties and those punishments were quite harsh. Yes. But I, but again, I just kept thinking about how, you know, interesting it is that she had both aspects within her own family, hmm. um, this kind of push for life, and then really a, a push to punish and kill both sides giving rise to cringy scenes oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was wondering if having approached this book so different than you have approached your other books by need by the necessity of the pandemic and what it imposed if that will at all alter anything you do in the future about your approach to novel writing and how what you would have done different, you know, if if the pandemic hadn't existed, I assume you would have gone to China for this book as well. But will you do anything different now in having gone through this experience of writing through the pandemic in your future books? Process wise, yes, I, I think the number one thing is some, you know, in the past, I've often been kind of embarrassed to like reach out to a professor at Harvard because like, why does he want to talk to little old me? But what I really learned with this book was, first of all, you know, Zoom. Hmm. Who knew about Zoom three years, you know, three and a half years ago? I'd never heard of it. But that there were people who were kind of in the same boat I was, right? They were isolated and they wanted to talk and they wanted to connect. And people like to talk about the things they're passionate about. And so there was a professor at Harvard who I did had several Zoom calls with. There turns out there's somebody who's an expert on mail, how how letters were moved around in the Ming Dynasty. You know, wrote a dissertation about it and was very helpful. I mean, these are tiny. De that's a, those were very tiny details in the book, but I had to allow you know find out the answer because why couldn't she just send a letter to her husband? 
mm-hmm. for example, or, you know, to explain something because it wasn't easy and because people didn't do it <laughs> right? <laughs> unless right. you were like the emperor. So I think that's the one thing that I got was that, that I can reach out to people and that they really want to share their knowledge and they're excited to share their knowledge because these are things that they've been studying and researching for their entire academic careers, right? So they're obviously passionate about it. And while I have done that in the past, I just felt that this time it was different because so much of it was done on Zoom instead of, you know, just writing an email, hey, could you answer this question for me? It, It made it much more personal and gave me the opportunity to ask these different people, like, well, you know, you, you've heard of this woman. How do you think she met the Tiller woman? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you imagine that? And I thought my my way was the best way. Yes. <laughs> Still, yes. But it was interesting to hear what they thought and how they thought or if they ever thought about it, which most of them had not because they're not There's thinking so. that way. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine writing a dissertation on the transport of mail in 15th century China and having a New York Times bestselling author call you up and say, I want to hear about it? You'd be like, yes, I've been been waiting my whole life to tell you. (laughs) I was wondering if you could leave us with advice, especially for historical fiction writers. I mean, the thing that really struck me about your author's note, so many things did, is not the reliance on Google and the internet. I'm sure you did to to many extents, but going to original source materials. And I know that you spent tons of time in, in research libraries at UCLA for past books and going to the original sources. But I was wondering if there's advice you can leave for his, specifically for historical fiction novelists and maybe specifically on research, where you go, how you know when you've done enough, how you know when you've wrapped your mind around it enough to make the fictive leap, any of those insights that we can leave off with, I think people would well, love to hear. Well, first I'll say that research is my absolute favorite part of the process. I just completely love it. I look at it kind of like a treasure hunt. I never know what I'm going to find. And like I said earlier, you know, there are things that I find, and I just think, oh man, I got to use it. You know, it, it. And and I wouldn't have made that up. You know, I wouldn't have made up writing on a baby's foot, uh, go home and then sticking. I, I don't think I, my mind doesn't, it doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> so, so to find that stuff is just amazing. I never think I'm ready to start writing, but I make myself start. And I do research all the way till not only the last page, but even after I've turned it in. Mm. And of course, you know, in the process of editing, uh, questions come up or, you know, people will will ask something like, well, how long I had done this ahead of time, but in another book for Dreams of Joy. The editor asked, well, how, you know, how did a mail go in and out of China when China was closed? Hmm. And I knew that it did, but I had to actually write more about the process than I personally felt was necessary, but he he (laughs) felt it was really important. So, you know, you're doing it through editing and then even copy editing because the copy editor will, will come up with something. Think, oh, I hadn't thought, you know, I thought that was really clear, but OK, I'm going to get more information. Uh-huh. I, the one thing I would say about research is that you have to think really broadly 
I talked earlier about clothes, hair, makeup, but it's also transportation, wedding rituals, death rituals, what happened in an autopsy, what happened in the birthing room, what happened, you know, how did an imperial scholar travel? I mean, there were so many different areas of research that I had to do, partly because it was 500 years ago. Yeah, it's not, you know, if you're writing from 100 years ago, we, we all have an idea of what that looked like. But we really don't for 500 years ago. So it just required so much research from so many different angles. I'm not afraid of the internet. I But you have to be very careful on what you find there. And you have to check it and double check it and keep looking for other sources. I think you know, one great thing about Wikipedia is footnotes. Mm-hmm. So that can lead you to other pieces where you can see, okay, was this, you know, is this information real or not? Right. That's great advice to go to the footnotes of Wikipedia and, and start there as an, another jumping off point for research. But yeah. Yeah. And I look at the footnotes in every, you know, every academic journal, every book. This book was different to work on because I, I couldn't go to UCLA to the research libraries there. They were closed. The the very sweet librarians offered to Xerox some stuff for me, and they did. But because I wasn't traveling to China, I sort of had a a bit of a budget. So I ended up buying a lot of books that have been long, long, long out of print, but there was no other way for me to see them. So I I just uh, gave myself that. <laughs> yeah. And I I mean I'm doing research on a the new book right now and there are two main source books that I've been using and if you could see what their bibliographies look like, you know, in in their books where I have asterisk check mark line, uh, you know, I mark it all up what which are the things that I need to go find, where am I going to find them? And one thing leads to another. That's right. I guess, you know, when information starts repeating itself and and books are referencing the same book that you've already read, that's kind of a good sign that you've closed the loop. Mm -hmm. I should remember this. Once upon a time, I was a lawyer and we all know that all of the information lies in the footnotes. So always spend your time in the footnotes. That's where the good stuff is. Right. Well, you have an amazing litany of events coming up all over the country. So I really want to direct people to your website, which is just lisac.com on your events page. People can see all of the places you're going to be. And you're going to be with me in September here in Laguna Beach. I'm so excited for that event. We're going to have a lot of fun. going to have so much fun. There's already so much buzz about it. Everybody keeps saying, what's the date? What's the date? And I'm like, just hold off. Just wait. It's coming. <laughs> so so that'll be fun. But yes, I encourage people to go onto your website and see all of the places you're going to be between now and then. And, and I can't wait to be together with you again. This will be fun. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. That was Lisa C. The book is Lady Tan's Circle of Women. It's out and available now. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com, two R's in Marie. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at Barrett 
www.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.